what do you want for Christmas? I know, it's not even Thanksgiving yet, right? I'm already putting up Christmas pictures and talking about Christmas. I want you to know it's not my fault though, okay? I am not rushing holidays ahead. I wasn't the one putting out Halloween candy on July 5th this year in the store, okay? It's not me, it's, it's just happening. We're always ahead of the game a little bit. There's a survey recently that came out, 2,000 Americans were quizzed and surveyed about what type of gift they wanted for Christmas this year. And the survey was very interesting because it wasn't what you would think. In fact, most of the people in the survey said that they didn't want an expensive item from some nice retail store, but they would rather have something kind of inexpensive, more of a personal gift. Something like a photo gift or a handwritten note, a photo book, a custom mug, a custom cup, a custom blanket or pillowcase, custom personal things. You know, a few years ago, uh, we got some his and her monogram towels, and uh, man, those things are great. They've held up fantastic. I love them. It's interesting, though, my wife's has her name on it, and mine doesn't. Mine was stitched with don't go bacon my heart. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's not true. Sounds like a good gift, though, you know, for that special some ham in your life this, this Christmas. I got them all day. Don't worry. <laughs> why is there a push for personalized gifts, you think? Why has that changed? One of the leaders behind the survey said this, more than ever, we're finding that people regard the holiday season as a way to reconnect with loved ones at the end of a hectic year. I'm feeling that. Are you? Have you had a hectic year? Has it been a little out of control? If so, then then you might be the kind of person that's looking for something personal because that, that personal gift, it reconnects you with the fact that you're not alone, that there are people in your life that love you, people in your life that care about you. Maybe you need some reconnect time from all the hectic activity of the day of the year. Isn't that scary? Hectic activity of the year, and we hadn't even made it to December yet, right? We all need some reconnect time. And you know what? A photo mug, a a handwritten note, uh, a mug with your grandkids' picture on it, um, a personalized bacon towel, whatever it is, you know, those things are are super great gifts. They, They can be helpful. Uh, They're helpful at Christmas. They're helpful on a birthday, an anniversary. They're helpful on a a random Tuesday in April. You know, those are just good gifts. They can be encouraging. But none of those gifts is personal enough for your soul. None of those gifts can, can actually heal and help and reconnect your soul. We need something more personal. Something deeper, something richer, something that's more than just a, a gift that has our name stitched or etched or airbrushed it on it. We, we need something more. So is there something like that? Well, our souls long to be satisfied. Because you didn't know that. Your, your soul, it longs to be satisfied. And the mug may go a little ways, the, the blanket may go a little ways, but, but we need something deeper. We, we live in a, in a culture, and especially the holidays itself, the holidays, they'll come and go. We live in a world that's full of change every single minute. 
And so in a changing world, in a, in a world where the holidays come and go, if we're talking about the satisfaction of our souls, we need something stable. We need something consistent. We need something reliable. We don't need something that can be put away for next year. We need something right now, always, and forever. So is there something like that for your soul? Is there something that can truly satisfy you? Well, let's find out. Looking at Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Apostle Paul is writing a group of Christians in a place called Philippi. They are living in an area that was on a, a main trade route back in the day, a main highway. They, their area was known for having clean natural springs and, and gold and silver mines. It was kind of a happening place, and, and it was growing all the more. And 10 years before Paul had written this letter, he actually went to Philippi. He, he shared the gospel. He preached the gospel. He helped start a church there in Philippi. And now it's 10 years later, and he's writing a letter to them. But 10 years later, he's finding himself writing that letter as a prisoner. And as a prisoner, what is he doing? Well, it says that he's rejoicing. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And how is he rejoicing in the Lord? He is greatly rejoicing in the Lord. Now, can I just kind of confess for all of us, not sure that would be our bio in our, you know, prison yearbook, you know? Oh, yeah, he's in prison, but he's rejoicing in the Lord, you know? That's probably not how we would act. How do I know that? Let me ask you a question. Were you rejoicing greatly in the Lord when you were in traffic in the rain this week on 26? Were you rejoicing greatly in the Lord? Hey, were you rejoicing greatly in the Lord this week when you had like the 743rd sneeze from that cold that just won't go away? Were you rejoicing in the Lord greatly this week when, when your order was wrong at the restaurant or when you got stuck in a really, really, really long line and there was 10 registers but only one was open. Were you rejoicing in the Lord greatly? Now, we kind of live in a culture and a society as a people that we do not tend to rejoice in the Lord greatly in times of difficulty. But Paul did. Paul rejoiced greatly. Why? Well, because the folks in Philippi, they, they remembered him. They, they gave him a gift. It might have been money, it, it might have been food, it might have been clothing. We don't know what kind of gift it was, but they gave him some kind of, of gift. And, and that gift was causing him to have joy. They had helped him before, according to Paul's language here, but it had been some time since they had helped him. They had revived their concern for him. So the fact that there had been some kind of time lapse in them taking care of him and doing something nice for him, does that mean they didn't care? No. So you've got to think about the time here. This was, this was before social media existed. You know? They couldn't go check on Paul's Facebook page to see where he had checked in recently. You know? They had no idea where he might be. He was all over the place on his missionary journey, so they were always trying to keep up and, and catch up with where he might be. So they may not have even known where he was. Or maybe their, their church was struggling financially and they just weren't able to, to send a care package to him at the time. Or maybe there wasn't a volunteer in the church to, to take whatever the gift was because the roads were dangerous. This was a dangerous mission to get Paul any kind of gift. There, there were violent criminals all along the roads. And there was no 
easy way to go set up a GoFundMe page for Paul. You know, we'll just, we'll do it that way. Now, there's a lot of different reasons for why they may have had a, a lapse in time in serving Paul and caring for Paul and being kind to Paul. We don't know what that lapse was, but, but the reality is we, we can kind of feel their pain on times like that, right? There may be times in our lives where our volunteering at the church or our giving money at the church or our volunteering as a, as a gospel person in the community, it might be a little low, you know. We might have a, have a break. There might be a lapse. There's a lot of different reasons that would happen, right? Maybe job demands, work demands, school demands, family demands. Maybe military service or, or sickness or age. But beside all of those things, when it comes to our service to God and His church, when it comes to our work in and for the gospel, we need to really only have occasional time lapses. In other words, we, we need to be engaged in the work of the gospel as much as we possibly can. This is how Paul said it to the folks in Galatia, Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Do good to everybody, but Paul says, especially be, be good to the folks at church. Why? Well, if, if we're not good to the folks at church, then how in the world can we reach a dying world? I mean, if we can't love each other, how in the world are we going to ask people to come in here and love Jesus with us? And on the flip side, if we only love each other, if we're some country club entitlement church and we only look out for each other's needs, how in the world will we glorify and honor God by having no relationships with non-Christians but only taking care of ourselves? See, Paul said, look, you need to do good to all people, but, but especially the people of the church. There's, there's something about the church. There's something about what God does in the church. And then what he does in the church, he, he spreads it out all over the place. And when are you going to have the opportunity to do good, as Paul said? Well, you have the opportunity to do good today, right now. You have the opportunity to do good to your spouse, to do good to your kids, to do good to your parents, to do good to your fellow church members, to do good to people in your neighborhood, to do good to just about anybody you come in contact with today. You can do good today. You can do it. And what are some ways we can prepare our hearts to, to be the kind of people that, that we do good on a regular basis? This is not an exhaustive list. I just threw some ideas out there. We can pray. We can spend time reading our Bible. We can tell people about our faith in Jesus. We can sing in the choir. We can visit folks who are sick. We can volunteer in the nursery. We can volunteer in the children's area. We can volunteer at Garage Giveaway. We can volunteer to come help and open doors and greet at, at funerals during the week. That, that's, that's become a real need in our church. Hey, we'll, we'll get you a name tag. You come on up and help us. You can give financially to the church on a regular basis. You can give a special gift to the church. You can invest in the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. You can call people. You can text people. You can write people. You can visit people. You can email people. You can use whatever form of communication you can to just encourage someone. It's a big thing. To encourage someone in the Lord takes almost no effort. You can do it when you're sitting in a long stoplight. You can do it in halftime of your game. 
There's all kind of opportunities for you just to think of someone that you know who's a believer or someone who's not a believer, and you can just encourage them. That's a way to do good. You can also do good by, by some don'ts. Here's some don'ts that are also doing good. Don't whine, don't complain, don't grumble, don't be negative. Don't, don't always think the worst of people first. Don't demand to always have things your way. But those, are, those are good ways to do Good. Those are good ways to love and serve other people. I've been in a number of conversations in the last few weeks with, with churches that are struggling, so I would just say this too. You can also do good by just trusting the pastors and the staff and the deacons and the teachers and the volunteers and the committee members and the church members. You can do good just by trusting them. You know, they're people who are not always going to do everything right. People in the church are going to make mistakes. They're not always going to do things the way that you think they should be done. And you know why? Because they're not perfect. And you know why that's true? Because you're not perfect. So church people aren't perfect. Coaches aren't perfect. Officials in football games aren't perfect. 17 to 20-year-old kids playing college football, they're not perfect. Professional football players are not perfect. There's no one who is perfect. And so we should learn to not think the worst first. We should learn not to jump first. But we should learn, because of the gospel, to do good and to be gracious and to be kind and to be patient. So in light of the church, just trust folks that go to your church until you see them misusing the name of Jesus, mocking the name of Jesus, or refusing to proclaim the name of Jesus. If you hear those things, red flag. If not, just trust them. Just trust them. There's a lot of ways of doing good. I just kind of gave a little short list. You can add like 15 things to it if you want to, but you know what? We all have a way to do good today. All of us could find at least one thing in all that I share that we can do today. So let us do good. The opportunity is right now. The opportunity is today. So, so do good. And, and don't do good as a chore. Oh, okay. I will do good. Don't do good as a chore. Do, do good as a reflection of your love for God as a reflection of your love for others. The folks in Philippi, they had been doing good to Paul. And and then there was some kind of break, but hey, the opportunity was back up now, and and they were going to be good to him again. And Paul's response was, hey, thanks, thumbs up. No, it's, it's much deeper than that. Paul says that he was greatly rejoicing that they were reviving their concern for him. He he was overwhelmed with praise for God. He was rejoicing in the Lord that they were thinking about him, that they were serving him, that they were helping him, that they were looking out for him. Can I just give us a challenge for this holiday season and really beyond? Could, Could we be the kind of people that we strive hard that other people would rejoice in the Lord greatly because we're thinking about him? because we're looking out for them, because we're serving them, because we're helping them? Could we be the the kind of people that that even just through our one church that that we could change the lives of people around us, that they might find a reason to glorify God just because of our kindness and our doing good to them? Paul rejoiced greatly that they were concerned about him and that they were going to step up and serve him again. And then he does something that really Paul is masterful at. He does this thing where he brings us low, he, he pulls us deeper, and he causes us to step up higher all at the same time. 
Listen to what he says next, verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Whether it was a bacon towel or a bag of coal or nothing at all, Paul, he was a happy customer. He he was a, a happy camper. Why? Because he learned to be content. What does it mean to be content? Well, in a very simplistic way, it just means to be satisfied. It means that in some way, the desires of your heart have been met. The key word that Paul uses here is is learned. Paul learned how to be content through the experiences of his life. So, what kind of experiences did Paul have in life? Again, just a short list. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was shipwrecked, he was robbed, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was sleepless. He was lied about, he was mocked in public, he was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was left for dead out in the snow, he was left for dead at the garbage dump. Those were kind of normal experiences for Paul in the second half of his life. The second half of his life was full of danger, full of difficulty. His life was pretty hectic for the second half. The danger we face, though, is that far too often we think about Christianity in terms that ignore this reality, and that is this, that true contentment comes through difficulty, not comfort. True difficulty usually is the spark of contentment in our life, not true comfort, because when they're comfortable, we kind of tend to forget that we need God. A story is told of a man who lived years ago in, in Hungary, and he went to his rabbi one day, and he said, Rabbi, I'm just, I'm losing my mind. This is what he said. Life is unbearable. There are nine people living in one room, and they're getting on my nerves. I can't take it anymore. What can I do? The rabbi answered him, take your goat into the room with you. Man looked at him a little weird, very confused, but the rabbi said, really, I want you to take your goat into the room with you and and come back and see me in a week. So the man came back in a week. He looked like he hadn't slept a wink. He turned to the rabbi and said, we can't stand it. This goat is filthy. He's driving us up the wall. So the rabbi said, okay, I want you to go home. I want you to let the goat out, and then I want you to come back and see me in a week. The man went back a week later. He looked rested, had a little little smile on his face, and this is what he said to the rabbi. Life is beautiful. I like the people around me. We enjoy every minute of every day because now there's no goat. There's only the nine of us. (laughs) In perspective, funny. Rabbi, there's nine of us in this room. And after two weeks and a little bit of perspective, oh, it's only the nine of us. Paul had a life of difficulty that gave him a lot of perspective. You know, it's strange in our culture because it's just not the mindset we have, but greater difficulty more often than not leads to greater contentment. We, we push against that. It sounds wrong, we don't like it, but greater difficulty often leads to greater satisfaction. Paul was a prisoner, and yet he was content and satisfied. He was in chains, and yet he was content and satisfied. None of that math sounds right. 
John Eadie said this, the captive may shake the chain, but as he cannot shake it off, his impatient effort only galls his limbs with aggravated severity. He can't shake off the chains, so he gets aggravated and cut and bruised and angry and depressed and bitter. Anybody there this week? You, you feel chained up with whatever it is, an issue with your spouse, an issue with your kids, an issue with your family, an issue with your health, an issue at work or school, stress over state of things in the world. What is it that you're, you're feeling chained up to? And, and is it doing this? Is it aggravating you to the point that you're rattling those chains so much that you're getting cut and bruised and angry and depressed and bitter? It can happen pretty quick. Most of us know that. But Paul was having the exact opposite experience. His inability to shake off his chains actually was creating contentment and satisfaction in his life. Why? How? Well, I was listening this week to a podcast. Uh, they were talking about the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it's called Knowing Faith is the, is the podcast. Some of you probably or may have grown up in a church where you recited the Apostles' Creed uh, every Sunday. Some of us uh, didn't have that experience. The Apostles' Creed uh, first kind of showed up on the scene about 400 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven. But as the Apostles' Creed is known today, it really didn't come about to about 710 A.D. And it's interesting because it was about another seven or 800 years later before anybody had a, a copy of the Bible that they could read in their own language. So what makes the Apostles' Creed beautiful is that it was this simple, fantastic tool to help the common man and the common woman and the common child to keep their grip on what they believed about Jesus because they did not have their own Bible to read. In the podcast, they talked about an interview with a man named Dr. Yaroslav Pelikan. Bless his heart, right? Yeah, Pelican was his last name. He was a teacher at Yale for, for 40 years. And in the interview, this was the question that he was asked. So what is it about Christianity that has needed creeds? And this was his response. Well, what it is about religious faith that needs creeds is that religious faith in general, prayer addressed to whom it may concern, sentiment about some transcendent dimension otherwise undefined does not have stain power. There's no stain power, just the notion of religion. And then he says this, it's okay to have that at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning when you're out with your friends somewhere, but in the darkest hours of life, you've got to believe something specific. Why was Paul content in prison? Why was he satisfied in prison? Because Paul was believing in something specific. He was believing in someone specific. This is how he communicated it to the folks at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, 
And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul is not believing in some fairy tale that his grandfather told him before he went to bed. Paul was believing in a specific person from a specific time that did a specific thing that can be specifically believed in and proclaimed. Paul was believing in the specific person of Jesus. He was believing in the specific history of Jesus. He was believing in the specific salvation that only comes from Jesus. This is how he said it to the folks at Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. How had Paul learned to be content in prison? How had Paul learned to be content no matter what the circumstances of his life were? Because he had Jesus. But that sounds hokey in 2019. I'll confess in, in the language of our words today, maybe it does, oh, I just need Jesus. But yeah, that's, that's the answer of a man whose life was hectic and dangerous and difficult nonstop. He didn't have vacation. He didn't get Christmas Day off. But he was content. See, his, his chains, they may have rattled in his ears, but those chains could not rattle his soul because he had Jesus. He was content in Jesus. He was satisfied in Jesus. He was happy in Jesus. Fanny Crosby was struck with blindness when she was just six weeks old. She wrote some of the most beloved hymns that we have about Jesus. And one of them I think we sang not too long ago has these words. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? She's channeling Paul there. What do I need besides Jesus? Can I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my God? Heavenly peace divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Her blindness may have kept her eyes from seeing the notes on the page, but her blindness could not keep her soul from seeing the beauty of Jesus. So how do we know that's true? Jesus doeth all things well. How about we just confess that we've had at least one moment this week, one moment this month, one moment this year. Hey, Jesus, you're not doing this well. Jesus, I, I don't know what you're doing now, but, but you're not doing, doing this well. But, but let's run with her thought. Why is it that Christians should believe that Jesus doeth all things well? Or, or maybe in light of what we're talking about, why should you be content if you're a Christian? Why should we as Christians be content? 
let me just say this, and, and we're going to talk about this for the next eight weeks or however long. Being content doesn't mean that you're happy with everything and you let everything go. That's, that's not what it means. Being content sometimes means that you have to step into a situation and you have to say no. You have to say, this is how it's going to be done. This is how we're going to do it. You have to step up as a parent or as a leader or as a spouse or as a child or, or wherever it is in life. Sometimes you have to step up and step in, but you can still do it in the contentment of who God is and the contentment of who Jesus is. In fact, you can step in and step up with more contentment because of who Jesus is. So why should we be content as Christians? I'm so thankful for uh, pastor, retired pastor, Jeff Thomas from Wales. His, his sermons have, have sung comfort to my soul on, on many, many moments. This is what he says about why a Christian should be content. Love this. Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he is the one who is in control of the universe in all its vastness and complexity. He controls every star in its composition and movement. He appoints and determines every planetary system, and he determines the qualities of every crystal and chromosome. Our inhabited earth did not come about by a combination of chance and zillions of years. Now, where's some preacher boy from Wales get that idea from? We got it from here. Paul in Colossians 1.16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Now look, I know that we live in a day and a time where the notion that Jesus has creative authority in and over creation sounds foolish to many. But, but can I just offer this? In this world of chaos and change, in this world of, of conflict, even though many people will not admit it, maybe some of us, what our souls want the most is something stable, something safe, something secure, something reliable, something that doesn't change. You know why we fight change so much as we grow older? Because we don't like the instability. You know why we fight change no matter what age we are? Because we don't like not being in control. Can I just tell you the greatest thing in the universe for your life is to never be in control. If you have a passionate desire to be in control, you are on your own. <laughs> because you want the God of the universe in control. You want the one who spoke the world into existence in control. Because you can't handle it. And I can't handle it. But he can. It's his. The authority of Jesus is over all of creation. And that is fantastic news. And science can't disprove it. In fact, if you came to our class last year on Wednesday night, science is actually proving it. It's a beautiful truth. Jeff Thomas goes on. We will always have the will of God for our lives, no matter how the storms may blow and the thunders roll. 
Every single day is his workmanship. I can preach that, but I cannot always put it into practice. Yet I am sure that this is the bedrock of my comfort, that Jesus Christ is in charge of today as he is in charge of every single day. Can I just give that to you in a little deeper way? When you are on 26, malfunction junction, at any time in the universe, but especially on Friday night when it's pouring down rain, when you're in that moment, it is good to know that Jesus is in charge of every day. I'm just throwing that as a, as a practical thing because we can't always put it in practice. I would love to say that in every moment that you're on I-26, that we just see Jesus shining in your life, right? That'd be great if we could say that, but let's just confess, that's not always going to happen. But you know what? Jesus doesn't quit shining. When we quit shining him, he doesn't quit shining. And, and that's, that's good to know. He goes on. My life has not been a tale of sound and fury told by an idiot, but my history has been written by the Savior who loves me. He is the author and finisher of my faith. Be confirmed that this is so. And when the policeman knocks on your door with a message, or when the telephone rings, or when the doctor's face is grim, or when it is the worst news you could hear, then you may know that whatever other great changes it is going to work in your life, they too must work for your good. Why? Because Jesus is in charge of the day. And that can't stop. That can't be erased. That can't be paused. It can't be rewinded. It can't be fast-forwarded. Jesus is in charge of the day. And he says this, there are times when God seems to have become our enemy, but it is only that he can become our eternal friend. I think sometimes we feel like God is our enemy. You ever been rattled like that? You ever been blinded like that? I sure have. I've had those moments where I'm going, God, what are you doing? What, what is this? but I've discovered that what Paul said was true. It's, it's in that moment that the eternal friendship of God, it, it becomes real. It's not just this thing that we sing and talk about on Sunday morning. I'm in miserable traffic, and the eternal friendship of God becomes real. I'm in a miserable, sad, painful waiting room at the hospital, and the eternal friendship of God becomes real. And you plug in whatever your moment is. The eternal friendship of God becomes real in that moment, and here's why. Because in that moment, I'm believing in someone specific. I'm not believing in a fairy tale. I'm not believing in the Christmas spirit. It's not happy holidays. Every day is a holy day because Jesus has saved and redeemed and rescued me. I'm believing in someone specific. It's not a mug with your grandkid's picture on it. It's not a pillow or a blanket with a picture of your dog on it. But the most personal gift in the universe for you is good on Christmas Day, and it's good on Fat Tuesday, and it's good on Arbor Day, and it's good on the third Tuesday of June. And that personal gift is this. 
Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you so that you could be saved and rescued and loved and redeemed and made right with God forever. The secret of contentment is Jesus because Jesus and only Jesus can satisfy your soul.